0: What God has done in our lives is something I'm trying in some way to weave into the fabric of the novels. I don't want to share my own faith in Christ, but I'm trying to be part of that great tradition of using storytelling to communicate truth.
1: Today on First Person, our guest is author and speaker Joel Rosenberg. Welcome to this week's conversation. I'm Wayne Shepard. I'm very glad to have you join us today. These weekly visits always highlight the story of someone whose life has been transformed by Jesus Christ and then goes on to explain how they feel called to serve Him with their life. Over the years, we've collected the stories of people from all walks of life who serve in every imaginable circumstance. For more, including an archive of these interviews, please log on to our website, FirstPersonInterview.com. There you'll find additional links to each guest. That's FirstPersonInterview.com. Today's guest, Joel Rosenberg, is well known for his thrillers based in the troubled Middle East. With a keen understanding of biblical prophecy and current events, including the threat posed by terrorism, Joel writes compelling novels. His latest is titled The Third Target, and we'll place links to it at FirstPersonInterview.com. But rather than talk about the plot of this latest book, I asked Joel to join us today to talk about his own story, and that's where we begin the conversation.
0: Well, look, I, I come from a little town in upstate New York. Uh, I was born in Syracuse and grew up uh, in a little town outside of Rochester uh, called Fairport. I come from a family where my father's side is Orthodox Jewish, and my mom's side is Daughters of the American Revolution, English, Methodist, WASP. <laughs> so, very American story in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, my My grandparents and great-grandparents on my father's side escaped, uh, as Orthodox Jews, out of Russia. Uh, In the early years of the 20th century, uh, the the pogroms uh, were causing horrific anti-Semitic attacks against uh, Jews in Russia, uh, uh, murders, uh, rapes, just terrible violence against the Jews. And so they fled. And uh, they actually hid in a hay wagon um, that was crossing a border out of Russia, Tsarist uh, soldiers uh, took their swords and plunged them into the hay to oh. see if anyone was in there. Uh, by the grace of God, and that's really all it is, uh, no one was injured. They got out. And, uh, you know, they could have done what many Jews escaping out of Russia did. They they could have said, great, we're in Poland or, or you know, Central Europe. Let's just settle here, mm-hmm. and we can start a new life. But, of course, uh, just a few years later... Uh, the rise of Nazism uh, exterminated uh, 6 million Jews in Europe. But but God had his hand on my family. I, grace is the only word for it, because they didn't know Jesus as Savior and Messiah. They were very religious, but they didn't have faith. But God moved them across Europe, got them to uh, the United States, and like any good Jewish family, they set up shop in Brooklyn, <laughs> which is where my dad and his brother were born and raised. So. Then my mom's side again came from England, looking for religious liberty back before the Revolution. I have circuit riding, gospel preaching, Methodist pastors in my heritage on that side. But by the time my mom's generation came around in the '40s, she she was raised in a church that didn't preach the gospel. So they met and married in 1965, and uh, my Jewish grandmother went ballistic. <laughs> And did not want my dad to marry a non-Jewish woman. This was a big deal, and yet my father was in love. They got married in 1965 in Syracuse, and eventually moved to Fairport and had me. And started a spiritual journey. And long story short, uh, my mom came to faith in 1973. After together they were reading the Quran, <laughs> they were reading the Bhagavad Gita. They thought about becoming Muslims or Hindus. They they, they didn't know what, they were on a spiritual journey and eventually my mom heard the gospel very simply and powerfully presented and she came to faith in Christ uh, really coming back to her family roots my father uh, was willing to join a bible study and they went through the gospel of luke with some young couples and through that study my father heard the word of christ for the first time uh and you know the Paul said, in Romans, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. And it doesn't always work on agnostic Orthodox Jews quite so quickly, but in six months, my father came to faith in Jesus as Messiah, and that was a spiritual revolution. Because Wayne, he, he thought he was the first Jewish guy since the <laughs> Apostle Paul to believe this. He, he'd never met a Jewish person who believed that Jesus is the Messiah, we hadn't heard of Jews for Jesus, we hadn't heard of chosen people ministries. But I began to watch my parents change. They weren't perfect, but they were they were changing people. My father's volcanic temper began to soften significantly. My mom was almost paralyzed by anxieties and fears of all kinds. She began to clearly develop a peace that passes past all my understanding and hers as well. So in time uh, I came to faith in Jesus Christ, and uh, we began to attend a little evangelical church. Um, and you know, and and our lives got set on a different path than we would have ever expected.
1: Hmm. That's an amazing story. And it's always fun to look back. and in your case, you can look back further than many of us can to see how God led and prepared. and it's always remarkable to hear the entire story, Joel.
0: I'm so moved by. The, the whole thought of amazing grace. You know, we, we sing it, we know it to be true, but when I think about my family, I mean, they should be—they should have been, you know, not should have been, but I mean, they very likely could have been murdered right. in Russia and gone to hell. Yeah, for, That's it, done, over, game over. Or in Europe, or come to the United States and never found Jesus as Messiah. God just decided to show mercy on our family and we totally didn't deserve it. Um, and I struggled with it in high school for a while because I... You know, my parents had been radically saved, I mean, truly, really part of the Jesus awakening of the early 70s, of the Jesus movement. Um, but I, you know, I'd come to faith, and I believe it was a sincere decision to be born again and receive Christ uh, in 1975, I was eight. But I would say it wasn't until my junior year of high school that I began to really wrestle this through. Do I believe it? Because my parents believe it. Uh... And now it's my culture, or, or do I believe it? Have I been transformed by it? And that, mm-hmm. was a, that was a tough season for me, but God again showed me mercy.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Um, how much of that story then drives you today? How much do you think about that? How much is in the background of your mind as you write about the things you write about today, Joel?
0: All the time, uh, Wayne, because, because look, when I finally fully gave my life to the Lord, I mean, I, I know I was saved at the age of eight, but it was, I was 17, when the Lord really began to like awaken me and, and electrify me with the the excitement of being in the family of God and the power of the gospel to to transform me if I would let it and let Him, and then I began to realize, hey, I'm Jewish, like this isn't this isn't historically normal to be excited about Jesus and be Jewish, you know, I have a name like Joel Rosenberg, you know, it, it, it's uh, I thought. Lord, you, are, you saved me for a reason. Now, now what's the reason? And uh, in college, uh, I went to Syracuse University, studied filmmaking, communication, storytelling, and I had an opportunity to study at Tel Aviv University for six months in my junior year. And I went and I just fell in love with the land and the people of Israel. But I was the only follower of Jesus on the entire campus that I could find, but that opened up all kinds of opportunities to talk about the Lord, and I mean, we, there we were visiting all kinds of scriptural, biblical sites, and, and nobody that I, there knew about Jesus. So, anyway, all that to say, um, there is a great, there's a great joy, but also a great responsibility in being a Jewish follower of Jesus. You know, it's a growing number of us worldwide, but but in the grand scheme, not that many compared to 15 million Jews. So my question has then lord you've obviously saved me not just for me what is that for how do I, how can i please you and so as i've gotten into writing novels you know i definitely want to write spellbinding high octane edge of your seat keep you up all night type thrillers <laughs> that's what i aspire to mm-hmm. but in that i don't want to do that for me i want to take people on an incredible uh Intense journey emotionally and intellectually. I want to raise the spiritual temperature in the novel, and at some point, have characters talking about faith, talking about the gospel in a in a in an organic, realistic way that fits the story and isn't sort of shoehorned in. You know, I'm also fascinated with Bible prophecy because I've seen uh, Israel come to you know become a country and. Jerusalem be reunified, and Jews streaming back to Israel. My own family and I have now become citizens of the state of Israel. We've moved to Israel. We are living this prophetic journey that's amazing. And, and if that's true, and it is, then the question is, what other prophecies are coming? And how do we help people at least be aware of those prophecies? So yes, what God has done in our lives is something I'm trying in some way to weave into the fabric of the novels, hoping to be able to use the novels, not only to share my own faith in Christ, but to enable the people who read them to give the books to friends, neighbors, uh, colleagues, fellow students, whomever, so that they can share the gospel with others. And, uh, you know, it's kind of, I guess, maybe counterintuitive to give someone not a tract, but a (laughs) 400-page political thriller... But somehow people, you know, they read them and I get so many emails and, and Twitter messages and stuff. people who are on a spiritual journey in some small part because they've read uh, a work of fiction. I, you know, I, I'm not the only one who's done it. I mean, obviously, Jerry Jenkins is a master. Uh, go back to Lewis and Tolkien. But I'm trying to be part of that great tradition of using fiction, storytelling
1: to communicate truth. And he does it well. We'll continue talking with Joel Rosenberg here today on this edition of First Person. Stay tuned. I'm pleased to announce that First Person is now produced with the support of the Far East Broadcasting Company. For nearly 70 years, FEBC has been proclaiming the gospel through radio and now new technology active in nearly 50 countries of the world, and broadcasting in over 100 languages, FEBC, founded in 1945, remains faithful to its founding vision to take Christ to the world by radio. To learn how you can support FEBC, visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com. My guest on First Person today is author Joel Rosenberg. And what a privilege to talk with Joel. It's been a long time since we had any contact, Joel. And I keep reading these books that you put out, and I'm I'm so amazed at the the uh, prophetic nature of not the, only the biblical pr- prophecy that comes through, but it almost is a, there's a sense that God has given you insight into the world. I mean, you predicted ISIS in this latest book that you wrote, The Third Target, before the rest of us even knew what it stood for.
0: Well, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do, Wayne, is—well, uh, thank you for that, first of all—and uh, because my— ultimate objective is to share spiritual truth through these stories, through fiction. Uh, The question in my mind is, how do I get people hooked, right? Jesus said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. So I'm not really good at fishing, (laughs) and I'm really not good at a lot of things, Wayne. I'm a failed political consultant. (laughs) Everyone I ever worked for lost or retired
1: or were delayed. Well, we'll we'll talk about that in a moment, but I I get it, yeah, sure.
0: So, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a lawyer, I'm one Jewish guy in America that didn't get the financial gene, I'm not an <laughs> accountant or stockbroker, hedge fund manager, it's just not going to happen for me. So, so that's why I got into making things up for a living. But but in these novels, my objective is to make my geopolitical scenario in a political thriller as absolutely as realistic, spot-on as I can, you know, within the limits of you know life and whatever. So I try to do as much research as I can, and I try to write about worst-case scenarios that could happen. I'm not predicting that these geopolitical scenarios will happen or that they'll happen the way I write about it.
1: they become so realistic, though, because of the headlines that come about many times after you write the book.
0: Well, that's right. And, and, and so somehow I have had the opportunity to write about events that turned out to be a lot more realistic and even I thought, I mean, as you know, the first novel I ever wrote uh, was called The Last Jihad. The first page of that novel puts the reader inside the cockpit of a jet plane hijacked by radical Islamic terrorists coming in on a kamikaze attack mission into an American city. Mm-hmm. Now, I wrote that nine months before September 11, 2001. And that plot goes from the kamikaze attack to an American launched war against Saddam Hussein, and 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 taking over Iraq. Now, again, did I know those things were going to happen? No, I, I really didn't. Did I fear or suspect that something like that could happen one day? Yes, and that's why I wrote a novel to say, "Gosh, let's hope and pray that never happens." But I didn't even get that novel out in time for the first element. To come true. Um, and that book really put me and these novels on the map. Like, no one had ever heard of me, <laughs> and no one had heard of The Last Jihad. And suddenly it was the number one bestseller on Amazon, a New York Times bestseller. I was on 160 radio and TV shows, and I, I'd never been on national television and barely anything but local radio before. God just opened the door and gave me a platform, and He's He's been doing something that's been beyond what my wife and kids and I even prayed for uh, in terms of being able to talk about the world and where we're heading, but also about Christ and how much we need him. He's doing much more than we could have hoped for, dreamt of, or imagined.
1: Well, in a self-deprecating way, you mentioned your failed political career. I I want to talk about that for a moment because it did uh, give you, uh, I have to think, a a sense of, uh, of that world. Your association with Benjamin Netanyahu, for instance. Um, Tell me about that. How did that begin?
0: Well, um, after I helped Steve Forbes lose two presidential campaigns and about $70 million of his daughter's (laughs) money, uh, I was deputy campaign manager on, on that, and George W. Bush mowed us down in 2000. After that, I started my own little consulting company for communication strategy, helping leaders discover, develop, and drive their message. I got hired by Natan Sharansky, the former deputy prime minister of Israel, Mm -hmm. to do some work for him, and then he retired from politics. And then uh, he recommended me to then-former prime minister Benjamin Netanyahu. So in the fall of 2000, uh, I met with him in New York. Uh, Netanyahu hired me. I joined a small team of American consultants on sort of a comeback campaign team. Netanyahu, as you know had been prime minister from 1996 to 1999. Now it was 2000. He was uh, strategizing a comeback politically. But I got to tell you, Wayne, it took him nine years to come back. <laughs> <laughs> and I played no uh, useful role in it, uh, ultimately. Right. Well, And it was after that, after he was blocked from running in 2000, 2001, that's when I turned to start writing my first novel, thinking, okay, I've had it with politics. I'm clearly not, this is not for me. But the experience I've gained from working for Israeli leaders and American leaders has given me, I don't know, some sense of the things they talk about, they worry about, Mm -hmm. things they fear. Maybe I could use that and write a novel and... I tried my hand, and God
1: God was very merciful. Well, here's what fascinates me about that, is that now, as an Israeli citizen, and you do have dual citizenship, do you not? We do. All right. right. As an Israeli citizen— and we get
0: to vote twice. It's oh, It's okay. like living in Chicago. <laughs> oh, yeah,
1: right. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you, you live under his leadership now in Israel.
0: Yes, that's true, actually. Right. Uh, and we, he's up for re-election um, uh, March 17th. We'll, we'll see how that plays out. But it'll be my first opportunity to uh, to vote in an Israeli election, my wife and I. and hmm. Yeah, it's a very interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. And uh,
1: What led you to move to Israel?
0: The Lord just began to put on our hearts uh, a sense that this was what, what we were supposed to do, and that this was the timing. This was a couple of years ago that the process started. And honestly, we were very reluctant, thinking, you know, God has certainly given us an opportunity to speak about threats to Israel and the United States, to support Israel and the Jewish people through a ministry my wife and I started in 2006 called the Joshua Fund. But we really never thought seriously about moving to Israel or becoming citizens. But the Lord began to stir that in our hearts. We sort of hesitated thinking, is this just us? Maybe we had a bad taco meal or, you know, I don't know what. Let's just let the Lord show us for sure. Uh, Because it's one thing to write uh, political thrillers about genocidal, you know, terrorist and nuclear war in the Middle East and so forth. Another thing to take your sons and your wife to live there and put your sons in the army and say, okay, we're all in.
1: Talk to me as a husband and as a father with those sons now. Are they in service or will they be in service?
0: Well, uh, time will tell. I mean, our, our oldest is 20. The next one is 18. They're of age. They will very likely be drafted. Uh, they love, honestly, uh, the, the the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, both Jews and Arabs. They uh, they've traveled extensively through the Middle East with me. They love the Arab people, but they do believe in defending the state of Israel. And if they get drafted, and they very likely will be, and and it could be this year, uh, then they will serve. Um, and uh, you know, I told them I when we were in the early stage of this process, I said, guys. You know, at the time I was 45. I'm 47 now. Boys, I'm 45. I'm overweight. I'm blind as a bat. I've got flat feet. If we go to Israel, the IDF is not going to draft me unless they need me to be a hostage. Uh, You know, I (laughs) just—they're just not going to do it. I'm out of the, out of the zone. But you boys may have to serve. You you may die. You may give up your life for a country you weren't even born in. Born in. How do you feel about that? And one of my sons leaned forward and said, that would be epic. God had just prepared them. um, If this is what the Lord was calling us to, to be all in, to defend the nation of Israel and to love the nation of Israel with the love of Jesus in their hearts. So I'm very proud of them. We'll see how this plays out. Um, It doesn't diminish our love for the Palestinians and the Arab neighbors, but we do believe in defending the state of Israel.
1: Joel, one final question. You know, as well as anyone, that your life is not your own.
0: Well, you know, we don't know how much time we have on this earth. We don't know how much, you know, who knows? Uh, maybe, maybe we're all going to get snatched out with the rapture. Uh, every day I think, okay, today would be good. The, the, the evil that's spreading in this world, the challenges. Look, we don't know how much time we have. We just don't. You know, you can be writing at a satirical magazine, or you could be uh, shopping at a grocery store, or you know, boom, terrorist kills you. Uh, you could be hit by a car, get a disease, have a heart attack. So we, we as a family are flawed, deeply flawed people that have been saved by the grace of Jesus. And we just want to use the time that we have to advance the kingdom, to, to share the gospel, to encourage the believers, to stand strong, to make disciples, to, to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus. And uh, through evangelism, but also through uh, humanitarian relief, through encouragement of the pastors, a whole wide range of stuff. So we're trying to use every spare moment, or every moment, not spare, every moment that we have to, uh, to serve the Lord so that when we stand before Him and we hear what we all want to hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant.
1: Well, now that you've met the author, I hope you'll read the latest book from Joel Rosenberg. It's titled The Third Target. It's another action story from Joel that combines his understanding of the Bible with current events as they could happen in the world today. Look for The Third Target. And for more information about Joel and his books, please visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com. My thanks to the Far East Broadcasting Company for their support of today's program. I know firsthand how effective FEBC is, not only in Asia, but in many countries, faithfully proclaiming and teaching God's Word, making disciples, and building the church. For more about FEBC and how you can support this ministry reaching today's world, please visit our website, firstpersoninterview.com. Once again, that's firstpersoninterview.com, FEBC, Christ to the World by radio. Next week, you'll meet Felicia Thompson, a woman who is giving her life to help the disadvantaged in the name of Christ. Now with thanks to my friend and producer Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. Join us next week for First Person.